Thanks, Grace, for the Bible reading. Um, good morning, church, and a special welcome to those of you guys on the live stream. Uh, thanks for coming in. Um, you can keep your Bible open and outline in front of you. Uh, let's pray for our time of understanding God's Word together. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly, our Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you speak to us and you've given us your gospel to us about your Son. Uh, please help us to know and trust Him as our Lord and as our Savior. Amen. Uh, when I was little, uh, every school holiday, my sister, Esther, some of you may know her since she used to come here, uh, Esther and I would spend lots of time in the sun, uh, slaving away in the garden because our parents were gardeners and they thought they could use some free labor. And we spent a lot of time in the garden pulling out weeds from the ground. And the thing with weeds is that if you don't pull them out properly, uh, they grow back and in stronger numbers. Uh, and me and Esther, or maybe it was just me, uh, we were bad at pulling weeds. And so if you showed this chapter of Mark uh, to me when I was a kid, uh, we'd be like, yeah, go Jesus. He just speaks to the fig tree and then it's gone for good. Uh, you guys, however, coming to this passage, have been around from in our Mark series long enough uh, to see that Jesus does, can do many much more impressive things than cursing fig trees. Uh, so what I hope for you is that after today, you won't just see a story about fig trees and tables being flipped but that you'll get to know what Jesus is actually like. Uh, not his great powers and his great abilities, but to know him and who he really is. And so as you'll see in the outline today, we have four points today, not three. Ooh. And so a quick note, by the way, uh, point one has a lot of important details, uh, so it will be a bit longer compared to the other points. And so don't get worried if you think it will be a one-hour sermon. Uh, so the four points, point one, ready or not, Point two, living in a fig tree world. Point three, Jesus is who he says he is. And point four, having faith in a trustworthy God. Uh, you can tell from the outline that the theme of today's passage is trusting Jesus because he is who he says he is. Uh, it's already hard for us to trust ourselves and it's already hard for us to trust other people. And so it's no surprise that we have a problem when it comes to trusting God. And if being fundamental to being a Christian or really fundamental to being any human living in God's world is knowing and trusting God. That's a problem worth dealing with. But God hasn't left us in the dark. He speaks to us through his word and gives us what we need to persevere and what we need to be joyfully faithful. And so we're at point one, uh, ready or not. It's good to know where we are before we dive too deep into the passage. So far, Jesus and his disciples have been making their way to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is Israel's capital, and it's also special because it's where the temple is, uh, which is where God used to dwell. And they're finally getting ready to enter Jerusalem. And we see that in verses 1 to 3. Uh, Jesus wants to enter Jerusalem in a very specific way. Uh, Jesus sent two of his disciples, verse 2, uh, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we will send it back here shortly. And so the reason why Jesus is so picky on how he enters Jerusalem is because it's fulfillment time. Uh, fulfillment of Zechariah 9, where God said that the Messiah will come riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. And Jesus is making that happen. And so Jesus is saying it's not just Jesus the healer, it's not just Jesus the teacher, uh, this is Jesus making it absolutely clear that it's Jesus the Messiah. And it's Jesus the Messiah King of Israel entering his city, Jerusalem. 
So how do you react uh, when, it's, when someone is making it super obvious who they are? Uh, one of our church members yesterday got married, and the bride was walking down the aisle, and she came clearly in a white dress. There was no mistake on who the bride was. Um, I haven't been to that many weddings, but I feel like there's a specific, a specific sort of behavior you're meant to exhibit. Uh, like when the bride is walking down the aisle, you stand up, and then as the bride walks across, like you slowly turn and face them, and you polite smile. Um, and if the groom, you're meant to look really happy, uh, and everyone behaves in that way because they're usually prepared for it. Uh, the person up the front announces that the bride is about to come in. You know, please stand. The music starts playing, and you see clearly who the bride is and when she comes in. No one ever gets caught around the room, just like staring around or sitting down, because everyone knows what's happening. And so that's Israel's response to Jesus when he's entering Jerusalem. Uh, they're well prepared because they know that the Messiah is on the way. Uh, because they get some warning while he's still in Bethphage and Bethany. Uh, because Jesus, in verse 2, was saying, go to the village ahead of you and bring the colt back here. Which gave them some time to think, oh, okay, this is Jesus, the Messiah coming. Let's prepare. And Israel gets prepared. So by the time they get to Jerusalem, the people of Israel give Jesus a very nice warm welcome by throwing their cloaks on the road. Uh, they spread branches on the road, which is like the equivalent of a red carpet in Jesus' time. Uh, so that Jesus can ride the donkey through it. And so in verse 9 and 10, they shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, praise God, praise Jesus. And Israel's hyping up this event because they know what's going on. Uh, God's Messiah entering the capital city of Israel is the biggest event in Israel's history. Uh, because if you look at Zechariah 9 or the many other passages in the Old Testament that talk about what the Messiah will do. Uh, the Messiah's coming marks the beginning of the end times. Uh, where Israel will finally be vindicated by God, led by the Messiah, and restored to its former glory. And so that's why Israel is hyping this all up. And so let's see where all this hype leads up to. Let's take a look at verse 11. Yeah, nothing. Uh, he just looks around, and he goes back to Bethany. Like, where, where did the whole crowd go? Uh, the way Mark is writing it, it look, it's like they just all disappeared. And Jesus doesn't do any vindication, restoration, glorification of Israel. He just goes back to where he came from in the morning. Uh, it's intended by Mark for us as readers uh, that this is kind of weird and we should be asking some questions. Uh, so we're at point 1B, which explains why what just happened, happened. Mark is trying to make a point out of Jesus' entrance because it matters how God enters his temple. Because the Old Testament prophesied exactly how God would do it. So Malachi 3 verse 1 says this, uh, this is God speaking to Israel, uh, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, that's John the Baptist, uh, then suddenly, suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple with messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And so when we get to Mark, we should expect God to suddenly turn up. Of course, by this time in Mark, we know that it's going to be Jesus, the son of God, who will turn up. Uh, when I was in high school, I was a bit of a gamer. Clem oh, sport that already. Uh, and I was that sort of high schooler. And I really liked playing computer games with, with my friends. Um, but I had one problem, because my parents, being normal parents, uh, didn't like how I was sacrificing my study and piano practice time playing games. And so my way around this was, you know in high school when on your timetable there's specific days where you get to go home early? Uh, in that time between getting home on a day where I got to go home early, and the point at which I heard the garage door open, which was my mum getting home, 
Uh, that was some undisturbed time to play some League of Legends uh, because my parents couldn't catch me playing because they weren't at home. Um, and so I just had to make sure that I wasn't playing by the time they got home. And so at that time, my dad worked late um, and my mum was doing a TAFE course or something, uh, which meant that she would get home from TAFE usually consistently after four in the afternoon. But TAFE though, TAFE started letting my mum go home early too. And I couldn't tell when that would happen. Um, and so at my house, the garage door is like an old metal spring door. And when it opens, it makes a like e sound. And so um, the days where I got home early and I would be playing, you know, concentrating pretty hard. And I was pretty comfortable because it wasn't four o'clock yet. And I would be playing. And then halfway through a game, I hear the e. And you know, or maybe the parents, oh, I feel like you guys actually know. Uh, you, you can't just pause the game. And so in, in this moment, I'm thinking like, what do I do? And it was always really terrifying because uh, I didn't expect it. And because I didn't expect it, I didn't make myself ready for it. And in Mark 11, that's what Jesus is being like. Uh, when Jesus, God's Messiah, came in with lots of warning and making it super obvious, uh, Israel could go out of their way to try to give Jesus uh, a super warm welcome. They knew he was coming, so they had time to get ready and do all the things they did. But what about when they didn't expect it? Well, not so good. Uh, let's go to verses 15 and 17. Uh, Jesus here, the Son of God, fulfills the Malachi prophecy. By entering the temple suddenly, no riding on a donkey and with no warning at all. And he's driving people out, turning over their tables, and he's ripping stuff out of people's hands. It's an outburst because Jesus is so indignant, which means angry at injustice, because he thinks clearly for some reason the state of the temple is just so bad. Uh, and the temple being the place where God used to dwell uh, is also like the spiritual center of Israel. And so by seeing what the temple is like, we can tell what the rest of Israel is like. And so temple equals Israel and state of the temple equals state of Israel. And so there's a few things in the text which give us a hint on why Israel was so bad, which explains why Jesus was so indignant. So number one is exploitation. Uh, let's see what Jesus says to them in verse 17. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. So what does Jesus mean here? Because nowhere in the text do we see people being robbed. Uh, well, we get a hint in verse 15, the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And in Mark's narrative, everything else in the temple is just verse 16. It's just merchandise. And so Mark's probably focusing on the money changers and those selling doves for a reason. Uh, because the people from all the nations to access the God of Israel would need to travel all the way to the temple of Jerusalem. And people here with pets know how hard it is to get around with a pet when you travel. And so if you were a foreigner and you wanted to make an animal sacrifice in the temple to God, uh, it was just easier to buy the temple when you got there. And so some people of Israel found this and discovered this market opportunity. So selling a dove, a dove has a low cost relative to the bigger animals. So to sell them at a high price was big profits. Uh, but secondly, the money changes. The leaders of the temple decided that you weren't allowed to use the money, which had the face of Caesar on it, or some false god printed on it, uh, because Caesar was the enemy of Israel, and false gods are false gods. And so using that money wasn't allowed by the leaders of the temple. And so the second market opportunity... Uh, if you wanted to buy the animal at the temple, you would need to buy the temple-approved money first, which obviously, obviously came at an exchange rate. 
And since Jesus is saying they've made, made it a den of robbers, uh, we, we can imagine that the exchange rate was probably looking like the sort of exchange rate to get to the airport. And so that's the first reason why Jesus is so indignant. Uh, Israel is using the temple for exploitation. Uh, but it's worse than that. They're not just being greedy in general. Uh, Israel here is running the temple in a way that's against God's will. So in verse 17, Jesus says, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Here Jesus is quoting Isaiah 56. And so Isaiah 56, verse 7, uh, These foreigners I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Uh, their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And so we learn from this that God wanted to include all the nations to love him and serve him. But Israel here is using the temple to exploit the people whom God has explicitly said that he wants to include. So they're running God's temple in a way that's against God's will. But that's not all. Worse still, thirdly, uh, when Jesus confronts those in the temple, what's the response of the leaders who run the temple? Verse 18, uh, the chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Like, does it get worse than that? Jesus, the Son of God, is coming to confront them for their sin, and the leaders are like, oh, we're not as popular as we used to be. Let's kill God's Son. And so, so to summarize why it's so bad, Jesus, the Messiah, sent from God, sees that the temple, which is meant to be God's holy place, in the land of what's meant to be God's holy people, it's filled with exploitation of the very one that God himself wants to save. And when confronted, the leaders of the temple want to kill God's Messiah so they can stay popular. And so you can see why Jesus is so indignant. Uh, God's own people have basically turned against him. And so from this chapter, we see Israel having two different responses to God. Uh, one where they're, where they're ready, so they could put up, put up a big welcome. And one where they're not, which is when they got caught in the act. So we're at point two, uh, living in a fig tree world. And now, if you haven't noticed already, uh, Jesus' outburst in the temple is surrounded by the story of the fig tree uh, because Jesus is making a point here, uh, which is that Israel is like the fig tree. And they tried to trick Jesus. Uh, in verses 12 to 14, the fig tree, uh, it looked like it had fruit because it had leaves. But when Jesus reached the tree and got a closer look, uh, there was no fruit. It was just leaves. And Jesus is saying that's the same as Israel. Uh, it looked like it had fruit because it had leaves. But when they got the heads up that Jesus, the Messiah, was coming, uh, they came out to give a shout and give him a warm welcome. Uh, but when Jesus was inside, when they didn't expect it, uh, which is when he entered the temple suddenly, uh, it was just all leaves, no fruit. God's holiest building had become a den of robbers. Uh, but all of this is really nothing new. Uh, we're used to other people being fig trees, and we know that we are fig trees. Uh, we know that other people aren't what they act like they are, and we know that we aren't what we act like we are. Uh, even when you're young, you know this. You get a happy meal, but the toy isn't even that good. Or your mum and dad promise you to do something, but they actually don't do it. It's a fig tree world. Uh, and so a few things have popped up recently in the news. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, it was revealed that Lydia Thorpe, a Victorian Green senator, uh, dated a senior bikie gang member while she was serving on the Senate committee, uh, which looked into bikie gangs. 
And the public reaction, oh, he has just laughed, oh, get ready. And the public reaction was the normal reaction you would expect when a politician gets exposed. Uh, she was publicly criticized, forced to resign from the Greens' leadership, and people were publicly calling on her to resign from parliament. Now, most of us uh, haven't dated bikey gang members, uh, which made her a pretty safe target to criticize in the media. Uh, but compare that to the recent Medibank data breach. Uh, people's history of abortions, drug use, mental health issues, all of that me medical history was, and I think still is, being leaked out right now. Uh, but there's no news about people publicly criticizing others in the media about those things. It's absolutely quiet. Because everyone knows that they could be next. And we all know that there are things about us that we don't want exposed. Now, I don't need to give examples of what those things are, uh, because we all have them, and you already know what those things are for you. And so we're all fig trees in that way. We try to present in our, ourselves in a way that looks good, even though we know what we've done, even though we know what we've done, and how sinful we are deep down inside. But being a fig tree is also something we're used to doing, uh, because there's something about the brokenness of this world that makes putting up an appearance necessary. Uh, to be accepted and recognized as being a someone, uh, we just know that we need to put up an appearance. If you turn up to a job interview, you would talk about how capable you are, uh, not just how unmotivated or how your work experience doesn't actually fit the job. Um, on social media, we generally post things that will make us look good uh, and make our lives look like make it look like our lives are put together. Uh, when we go to church, uh, we're, we can be a bit self-conscious because we feel that we should be put together Christians uh, because everyone lo else looks like they're doing an okay job at being a Christian. And we can feel that same way when we approach God. Uh, we know we've sinned. Sometimes we'll often sin terribly. And that might have been you in the past or even now. And what goes through our heads is, could God really forgive me for what I've done? And we think that because we're already pretty sure that no one around us will forgive us, or at least we know what we did, and we're sure that we can't forgive ourselves. And so we can be scared when we come to God, and so we don't really come to God as who we really are, uh, which leaves us to live in fear, because what if God really knows who I am and what I've done? And if he does know who I am and what I've done, uh, he says he'll forgive me. But how do I really know? And if he has forgiven me, how do I know he, whether he regrets it now? And so we don't trust God because we think God is like a fig tree. Uh, we think he's just like Israel. We think he's unreliable like other people. And we think he's sinful like us. But that's not true because Jesus is who he says he is. And so we're at point three, Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, you can really tell uh, what someone is like based on how they react to things. Uh, because anyone can keep up an appearance and be a fig tree, uh, but when people are confronted with things in the moment, uh, you see what they really like. And so uh, what happens when you give one of the guys over here a keyboard? Uh, what happens when you give Justin Poon some K-pop? Uh, what happens when you remind Elliot about Anastasia? Well, they're happy, and it shows on their face. Uh, you can tell. And so by seeing how Jesus reacts, we see what he's truly like. And something that's been happening again and again in Mark's gospel is how indignant Jesus gets when people are stopped from coming to him. Uh, like when the children were being brought to Jesus uh, and the disciples thought you had to be more important than being a child to see Jesus in Mark 10, 14. Uh, when Jesus saw, that he saw this, he was indignant and he said to them, 
Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. And it happens again in this chapter. Uh, his reaction is so different to everyone else that's ever walked inside the temple, uh, which is why the people in verse 18 are so amazed. Uh, everyone else has seen foreigners being exploited, but Je- Jesus' reaction is so different because he actually cares. Uh, he becomes so full of anger because he feels there's something wrong with what is meant to be right. Uh, Jesus, unlike everyone else, is fully committed to God's plan and shares God's heart to save the nations. You know, compare this with the Pharisees, Pharisees in verse 18. Uh, their power depended on what people thought, and they felt that they needed to do what they could do uh, to make sure that they stayed popular, uh, which was, in their case, killing Jesus. Jesus, not swayed in that way. It doesn't matter if Israel just gave him a warm welcome and cheer and finally acknowledged him for being the Messiah. Uh, no, he sees the injustice happening inside the temple, and he flips Uh, He's not thinking, oh, well, what can I do today to stay popular? No, it's in Jesus' very character as the Son of God that when he wants someone saved, he wants them saved. Nothing and no one can change that. And God's plan is to save the nations, and he's committed to it, uh, which is why he sends Jesus to take on the sin of the world on himself. So when God says you are saved, when he says he's pleased with you because he's made you righteous through Jesus' death and resurrection, He is pleased with you. And so rest in that church and praise God that because he's not like us in that way, we can come to him and fully trust him. Uh, Often we look at the sin and chaos in our lives and that we see all the things that are wrong and we fail to look up and see that God still hasn't changed. Uh, So church, see Jesus' anger at exploitation in God's temple and see how his love for you and commitment to you cannot be swayed by anyone. Jesus is who he says he is. And when he says you are forgiven, you are forgiven. And to wrap point four, having faith in a trustworthy God. Uh, We've come to the last chunk of our passage. Uh, Jesus does the application for us and he gives us two points of application. And our first point of application. Uh, In verse 21, Jesus and the disciples walk past the same fig tree the next day. And Peter points out that the fig tree uh, has withered away to its roots. And so it's completely dead. And Jesus responds to Peter saying, have faith in God. Why does Jesus respond in that way? Well, firstly, it's because Peter's being a little bit silly. uh, Because he's seen Jesus do much greater things than withering fig trees. Uh, But in verse 14, when he heard Jesus curse the fig tree, he didn't think it would actually happen. And so Peter, just like the rest of us, uh, has a problem with having faith in God. And so the short answer is that Jesus says, have faith in God, uh, because Peter didn't have enough faith to believe that God, that Jesus could successfully curse the fig tree. But really, after all the things that have happened in this chapter, is our application that we should Go home today and believe that Jesus has the power to curse fig trees. Yeah, no, it's not. Uh, Hence why context is what we need to understand why Jesus is calling his disciples to have faith in God. The theme of having faith has popped up several times in Mark's gospel already. Uh, I'll just give a few. Uh, Mark chapter 5, the woman who kept bleeding. Uh, This woman touched Jesus and became healed. And Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Uh, Again, in chapter 9, the boy with the unclean spirit, a father brought a child with the unclean spirit to Jesus, 
and said, if you can, Jesus, help us. And Jesus says, if you can, uh, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the father cries out, I believe, and the child is healed. And again in Mark chapter 10, uh, the blind man Bartimaeus, uh, Bartimaeus shouted at Jesus to give him sight. And Jesus said, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. So did you spot the pattern? Uh, people have had some sort of physical condition. Uh, they have faith. And as a result, Jesus heals them. So sickness, faith, and healing. Sickness, faith, and healing. Uh, and in Mark 11, uh, Jesus is calling for some serious faith. Uh, verse 23, if you have faith that God will move this mountain for you, and you really believe it, God will do it. Uh, verse 24, if you ask for anything, not just a mountain being moved, believe that you've received it, and it'll be yours. So why do they need this amount of faith? Well, let's go back to the pattern. Sickness, faith, and healing. Jesus is telling the disciples that they need the greatest faith in God they've ever had in their lives. Because they, they have just faced the greatest problem they will ever face in their lives. Uh, something worse than non-stop bleeding, something worse than being blind, even something worse than being possessed. And that problem is the curse that we just saw, the curse of the fig tree. It's the curse of Israel, cursed because Jesus saw what was inside them and found no fruit. And it's the curse against sinful humanity and us. Because even if we try, the best we can do is put up an appearance before God and hope that he can't see through it. So what can we do to be healed from this curse? It's to have faith. Uh, this probably isn't new to you, but it's needed. Uh, it's easy to assent to the fact that Jesus can walk on water, heal the sick and control the weather. But it is so hard to look past the sinfulness of ourselves and of this world which we're so used to, and have faith that Jesus is really who he says he is. When he said he would die for your sin, he died for your sin. And when he says you're reconciled to God, you are reconciled to God. And when he says approach him, he wants you to approach him. And sometimes we think of, uh, when we think of having faith in God, and this applies no matter how long you've been a Christian, uh, we can feel pretty bad because we know that uh, we don't have very much faith, or our faith isn't very solid. But Jesus already knows that. Like There was never a point where he got tricked by any attempted fig tree, uh, which is a bit of a threatening thought, but it's also comforting. Because you know that when he died on that cross for you, he already knew what he was dying for. And that's why when Jesus invites us to have faith in him, we can boldly approach him, knowing that he already knows us fully. And so just like the woman with bleeding who touched Jesus, like the father who believed, like blind man Bartimaeus, trust Jesus that he is who he says he is. And we, when he says you're forgiven, you are forgiven. Rest in the fact that he knows you and even then he's forgiven you. And when you pray, pray confidently and pray openly. Proudly consider yourself as part of his family and his kingdom and be certain that nothing can change that. Our second point of application. Uh, Jesus' second point of application is inviting you uh, to share God's heart for forgiveness. So verse 25, uh, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, uh, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So here Jesus is teaching his disciples, uh, forgive others so that you'll be forgiven. But for us on this side of the cross, for trusting us trusting who have already trusted in Jesus, uh, we have been forgiven. And so Paul in verse in Ephesians 4, uh, he exhorts the Ephesians saying, 
Uh, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Because what's important to God is that after you have faith in him, you share his heart. Uh, Don Carson makes such a helpful point in one of his books. Uh, to God, it doesn't matter if he can run large-scale programs at church, evangelize thousands, or do heaps of ministry. You can be so committed uh, or appear to be committed to the abstract idea of, for- of forgiveness for the nations, uh, which is such a good fig tree cover because it's such a noble task. Uh, but it doesn't really mean anything if God looks into your heart and sees that you're not ready to forgive that person in your family or that person in your CG uh, or that person from work. And so think of that person and start there and forgive them. Uh, because Jesus, because God already sees through appearances, uh, doing big and great things to try to cover up uh, doesn't help. Uh, I was recently encouraged uh, by one of Elliot's newsletters uh, where he said, begin with the small decisions. Uh, resist thinking faithfulness is seen only in your major decisions. Uh, what Jesus is asking for isn't something great and unachievable. Uh, what Jesus wants is for you to share his heart by taking that one first step of forgiving that one person. And so to finish, uh, there is a tree uh, that the Bible mentions where there are no leaves that hide what was happening. And it was the tree on which Jesus died. And it's very hard to doubt what Jesus intended to do when he hanged on that tree. Uh, 1 John 4 puts it as this. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, uh, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your unchanging love. And thank you that you really are what you say you are. Uh, Thank you that you love us even though you know who we really are. We pray that you will help us to trust and rely fully on you and share your heart for the world and for those around us. Amen.